So James chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. And the title of this passage is, Submit Yourselves to God. James says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you... Who are you to judge your neighbour? Rich, let's pray for Rich, shall we, as he comes to speak. Let's stretch out a hand to pray for him. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Rich, for the ministry you've called him into. Thank you for his love for you and his heart for people. Lord, may that be enlarged tonight as he speaks to us. May we have ears to hear what he has to say. And more importantly, hearts that are wanting to obey and step out in faith to whatever you may call us to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, yeah, so you've heard a little bit about me. I just wanted to start really by um, just saying thank you so much to all of you um, for welcoming me over these last couple of weeks. Um, You know, I left Cambridge, left my wife, my little children, and came here for the week and and all that. And it's, it's amazing to come somewhere where people really welcome you and really just go out of their way to be friendly, to invite you to their homes, to feed you, to teach you how to play FIFA and uh, and all those kind of things. So I just want to say thanks so much to all of you for being such a welcoming church and for looking after me while I've um, while I've been here. Um, if you've been around over the last few weeks, you'll know that we're doing a series in the evening services looking at the book of James. And um, you may have worked out that over the last few weeks, James has been raising a number of issues that are prevalent in his church at, in his day that he wants to tackle. And I guess they're issues that are still prevalent in the church today. So he's raised the issue of favoritism. He's been saying, look, some of you guys are showing favoritism to some at the expense of others. Particularly, you're showing favoritism to the rich and ignoring the poor. He's raised the issue of the conflict between faith and works, or the potential conflict anyway. He's been raising the issue of our tongue, our speech, the things that we say and the damage that we can do with our tongues. He's raised the issue of worldly wisdom and godly wisdom and the conflict between the two. And tonight, James in chapter 4 begins talking 
about conflict between believers, conflict within the body of Christ. And so I want to talk about that a little bit, but also in tonight's passage, I think James begins to talk about the solution. Not just the solution to the issue of conflict within the body, but actually the solution to all of those issues that he's been raising with his hearers. I don't know if any of you have been in a church that's been at conflict, or you've been in a group of Christians where there's been real conflict. I'm not just talking about disagreement. I think actually disagreement that's with love and with humility can actually sometimes be a sign of maturity. But I'm talking about when that disagreement spills over into conflict, where love has gone and people are odds with each other. Those kind of situations are very, very painful situations to be in. And the scars that people receive in those kind of situations run deep and last for a long time. And James uses some pretty strong language when he's speaking about conflict. He uses the word to fight, to quarrel, to kill. It doesn't get much stronger than that. And I wondered if sometimes when we read words like that, that we can begin to think, does this really apply to me? Does what James is saying here, does, does it really apply to me? I've never had a fight with somebody because they used dustbins in worship or because we sang that song for the 17th time in a row or, you know, whatever it might be. I've never, I've never attacked anybody because, you know, I disagreed with a theological point that they made. Does this really apply to me? And yet I wonder if James is actually using that kind of language because he's trying to highlight the spiritual reality, the severity of the situation when there's conflict between brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. That actually that kind of conflict leads to a spiritual death. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about anger. And he says, look guys, at the root of murder is anger. And when Jesus speaks about adultery, he says if you lust after someone, it's like you commit adultery with them in your heart. The language that James uses is similar. I wonder if he's trying to highlight the reality, the severity of the situation when brothers and sisters throw love out of the window and they fight. I guess when the body is at war with itself, it's a bit like a cancer. The diagnosis is not good. When brothers and sisters fight, it can lead to spiritual death. And it doesn't just affect our relationship with each other. James begins to say, look, it affects your relationship with God. He uses the example of prayer. Somehow when there's conflict, our relationship with God can be breached. We may be fighting for something that we passionately believe. We may even be fighting for something which we believe is absolutely correct and the most important thing ever. And yet James says if you have the wrong motives, your relationship with God is breached. So in verse 1 he says, what causes fights and quarrels? What's at the root of these things? He says, don't they come from the desires that battle within you? In verse 3, he says, when you ask, you do not receive, speaking about prayer, because you ask with wrong motives 
that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is saying it at the, the root of conflict is selfishness. At the root of conflict is an overwhelming desire to please myself. And that desire gets out of control and we fight and we quarrel and we kill. And then, in verse 4, he really kind of hits us with it. He really kind of goes to town on his readers. He says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Ouch, you adulterous people. In the Old Testament, God was depicted as a husband, a husband that was faithful to Israel, kept his covenant, was faithful with her. And yet Israel is depicted as a wife who's wayward. She flirts with other gods. Sometimes rather than just flirting, she seems to just jump into bed with them. James says when you, when you flirt with that selfishness, when you flirt with that overwhelming desire to please yourself, when you ignore the greatest commandment to love God with all of your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself, it's like you commit adultery. You turn your back on your faithful husband. And then he says this thing about the world. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? James isn't speaking there about friendship as in being friends with non-Christians or people who don't come to church or listening to kind of the music of the world or watching the films of the world, whatever it might be. The word that James uses there for friendship implies an alliance, a political alliance. James is saying, don't ally yourself with the wisdom of the world that encourages you to give in to that overwhelming desire to please yourself. Don't ally yourself with that. If you make an alliance with that, you'll be an enemy of God. I think James is saying that at the root of these issues that he raises is not an external problem. It's not a problem that can just be resolved by good pastoring or good counselling or good intervention, although all of those things are important. I think that James is saying at the root of it is a spiritual problem. It's the problem of the human heart. It's the problem of sin. It's the problem of our constant rebellion against God. And the spiritual problem requires a spiritual solution. All of that is the bad news. But James offers an incredible amount of hope. He begins to talk about transformation. He begins to talk about a solution. In verse 6, there's an amazing verse. He says, but he, but God, gives us more grace. But God gives us more grace. There's always enough and there's more on top. Grace 
is the thing that transforms. Grace is the thing that solves the problem of the human condition. And God gives so much. And there's one condition, James says, to receiving grace. And it's humility. It's humility. The condition to receiving grace is recognising the fact that you need it. It's coming humbly before God and saying, God, I need your grace. I need your solution. I need more of you and your transforming power. And then James begins to point us on the path towards transformation. In verse 7, he says this, Submit yourselves to God. Submit yourselves to God. When I was um, young, I don't know if any of the guys can relate to this, but when I was young, I used to quite like wrestling. Can anyone relate to that? Good. Uh, Mark can. Good. A few little, you know. Like, I'm sure, like, if somebody shouted bundle on the school field, like, <laughs> just like hundreds of boys would appear from all over the place. And they would just, like, form this mound of kind of wriggling limbs, and some poor child would be on the bottom of it, and... You know, it was just brilliant fun, and the girls would just sort of stand there looking on a little bit, like, what on earth is going on? But boys just seem to love wrestling. That Even some of the girls now are just thinking, what are you talking about? And um, so that was like when I'm talking about when I was seven. But then when I was at university, and I hope I'm not going to embarrass myself saying this, I fear that I might. But when I was at university, sometimes you'd be at a friend's house, and there'd be a group of lads there, some girls. The girls would sort of be sitting around, they're watching telly or chatting about stuff. And all of a sudden, like, one guy would just jump on another guy and start wrestling him. And before you knew it, there'd be this massive, like, group of kind of boys just wrestling on the floor. Does, have I embarrassed myself saying that? Or does some people... Some people are nodding. Okay, so, okay. Some people can relate to that, but not everybody. But the worst thing that can happen when you're wrestling with your friends is when you know that one of your mates has got you in a position or in a hold and you cannot get out of it. It's the worst thing that can possibly happen because you're starting to think, oh, you're struggling, you're kind of wriggling, you're doing everything you can to try and get out of it, but he's got you. And the really worst thing is if it hurts. And then you start thinking, I might have to say the word that I do not want to say. I might have to say, submit. I might have to just whisper it or shout it or do something. And you struggle a bit longer and eventually you think there's nothing else for it. And you say, submit. And it's the worst thing that can happen. Because you feel like you just, you just look a fool. And you're really embarrassed. James is saying that the beginning of the road to transformation is being willing to say, I submit. I submit to you, God. I surrender. I give up. I submit. But again, the word that James uses also means to enlist It means to sign up. It means to sign up for an army. It means to join a side, to give yourself over to a cause. James is saying the road to transformation begins with submission and enlisting. Saying, God, you can have me. You can have me. You can have my life. You can have all of me. I submit 
and I sign up to be on your side to fight for you. And then James says, look, if you do that, if you submit, if you enlist, there's going to be opposition. The devil is not going to like it. He is going to oppose you. James says, you've got to resist him. Resist the devil, he says. But then he says something which I think is really encouraging. And this isn't a talk about resisting the devil. You could look at Ephesians 6 or something like that if you wanted to talk on that. But I think James says something that's really encouraging. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, the devil doesn't want to fight. He doesn't want to hang around and really scrap with you. James is saying resist him. When he opposes you, when he tries to draw you out of submitting to God or enlisting to God, resist him and he will flee. And then James says this, and I love this verse. He says, come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God and he will will come near to you as a promise. Actually, transformation takes place in the presence of God. That's where it happens. It takes place in his presence. And James says, as you step out towards God, he will step out towards you. I think part of coming before God humbly is being willing to take that first step. Part of coming before God in humility is being willing to say, okay, God, I need you and I'm stepping towards you. We've got a little boy called Joshua. He's two. And sometimes when he wakes up from a night's sleep, he doesn't really like to walk downstairs. He's just a bit kind of groggy and a bit doddery. And I think he just kind of knows that he might fall. And so when he kind of gets out of bed, he sort of, he sort of wanders towards the top of the stairs. And if you walk down in front of him and you turn around, you'll notice that as he's at the top, he's just kind of leaning out. And because we've kind of figured that out, Julie and I are kind of ready, or I think Julie is, I am, um, we're normally, we're, there, we're ready to catch him because we know he's going to do it. But he just kind of leans out at the top of the stairs, trusting that mummy or daddy will catch him and carry him the rest of the way. When I say catch him, I mean, I'm not talking like we're, like, we're not like five steps below him. But, you know, we're, yeah, just wanted you to know that. Okay. But you know what I mean? He leans out and as he does, our arms are open and we pick him up and carry him down. I think that's like God. You know, as we lean out, as we lean out towards him, he leans in towards us. And it's in the place of his presence that we're transformed. James goes on and he says, wash your hands and purify your hearts. You know, one of the things that happens when we come into the presence of God is that we see God for who he is. We begin to see God more clearly. And one of the other things that happens when we come into God's presence is that we begin to see ourselves more clearly. And sometimes that can be amazing because we think, wow, we're God's child and we're God's precious son and daughter and that's amazing, we realise his love. But sometimes we also begin to realise, oh, but there's some mess. There's some mess here. And I need someone to clean me. I 
and to forgive me and to cleanse me and to wipe it away. There's a really amazing story in the Old Testament about the prophet Isaiah. It's probably one of my favourite passages, I think, in Isaiah chapter 6. And Isaiah has this incredible encounter with God. He sees this vision and he sees God in all of his holiness, all of his sort of awe and wonder. It's this amazing vision and he hears the, the, the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth are full of his glory. He has this incredible encounter, the presence of God. And as he does that, as it happens, he begins to become aware of himself. He begins to become aware of his own sin. He says, woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. In the presence of God, Isaiah sees himself for who he is and his people for who they are. And he concludes that he's going to die. The only thing for me is that I'm going to die. I've encountered the Holy One and I'm an unclean man. And yet in that place, Isaiah experiences the most incredible grace Because what actually happens is God takes a coal from the altar. It's all in the vision. And he reaches out to Isaiah with it. And he touches Isaiah's lips. And Isaiah's sin, it says, is washed away. It's atoned for. Rather than dying as a result of his sin, God washes it away. Isaiah experiences something of the grace of God. It says in the Bible that God is like a refining fire and a launderer's soap. And when we come into his presence, that fire of his presence begins to burn up the dross and the mess in our lives. And the soap begins to wash it all away. And that's what Isaiah found. Rather than dying, God cleanses him of his sin, atones for his sin. But he gives even more grace. Because not only is Isaiah cleansed, but he's also commissioned. God says, who will go for us? He asks a question and Isaiah hears the question. He says, well, I'm here. You could send me. I'll go. Isn't that amazing? That Isaiah has this encounter. He thinks he's going to die. But he receives grace upon grace. More grace than he was expecting. His sin is removed and he's commissioned, he's enlisted, if you like, to go on behalf of God. Transformation takes place in the presence of God. And in that place there is grace upon grace upon grace. James finishes that passage with this amazing verse. He says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. If you come humbly before God, you acknowledge your need, you come into his presence, you lean into him, he leans into you, 
his fire and his soap get to work, you find this grace upon grace. And God will lift you up, just like Isaiah found. So James has been talking about the issues. And he's now talking about the solution. It's the presence of God in which we're transformed by his grace.